an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio. Heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, a Bothell man is revealing the secrets hidden in a Seattle cemetery for Union Army Civil War veterans. There's somebody from every single state, every single battle, every campaign of the war, every branch of service, heavy artillery, cavalry, navy, marines, infantry, light infantry, mounted infantry, it's all here. And then... From the archives, that long-ago year when Seattle, Ellensburg, and Spokane went up in flames. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner... Our resident historian Felix Bennell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, a quick look at the stories behind local places and things, and this week, the twisty tale of the Fort Vancouver Centennial Half Dollar. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Aaron. Check your pockets. You might have one of these. Now, historic Fort Vancouver on the Columbia River in Clark County. It's going to commemorate its bicentennial four years from now. Hard to believe. The fort was founded in 1825 by the Hudson's Bay Company, later became a U.S. Army base, now a National Historic Site, operated by the National Park Service, and a great place to visit. Um, Now, back in 1925, they marked the centennial of the fort's founding with a series of events that took place in August. One thing they did was produce a big historical pageant written by a local guy, and it was called, uh, no joke, it was called The Coming of the White Man. Uh, Another thing they did was to get the U.S. Mint to produce a commemorative half-dollar coin, and it was this week, back in 1925, when the first batch of those coins was flown up from San Francisco in dramatic fashion to the airfield that's right there at Fort Vancouver still. Now, the pilot was this legendary aviator named Oakley Kelly. It took about ten and a half hours of flying time to make it to San Francisco and back. Now, some of the accounts you read will say he carried 50,000 of the coins to Vancouver, but that would have been impossible for his de Havilland DH-4 Liberty biplane to carry, especially since he also had a reporter with him. Other accounts would say Kelly transported only 500 coins. Those are likely correct. Now, the front has a guy named John McLaughlin on it, and the front of the coin, of course, for you coin geeks out there, is the obverse. And McLaughlin was a chief factor at Fort Vancouver for the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, generally credited with being the father of Oregon and very helpful to anyone who showed up at the fort needing food or supplies. The back of the coin has an image of the fort with a fur trapper standing in front and Mount Hood visible in the background. The coin didn't almost didn't happen. There was a legislative snafu, but uh, President Coolidge signed the bill and they made 50,000 of these coins. They had the, the ability to make up to 300,000 of them, but only 14,000 were ever sold by the Vancouver Centennial Committee. They bought them at face value and could sell them for a dollar, and the idea was to raise money and then to pay for the centennial activities. Mm-hmm. The other 36,000 were sent back to San Francisco and melted down. So there's only 14,000 in, 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 uh, that were distributed, so it's a relatively rare coin. Also, midway through the celebration, the Centennial Corporation secretary committed suicide on the festival grounds. Ooh. Might have been some fiscal reasons for that. A thousand of these went to the Hudson's Bay Company in Manitoba, where they sat for about 50 years until finally an employee stole them and started spending them. Anyway, it's a very, very bizarre history. We we could spend lots of time talking about it, but take a look in your coin jar or in Grandpa's closet. People were spending these back in the 1920s. And there are plans in the work to celebrate the bicentennial of the fort in 2025, and I don't know yet if uh, if they are going to produce a coin. I hope they do because I want to have another excuse to say the word obverse on the radio. (laughs) Getting real deep with it. Uh, Thank you so much, Felix. That is our resident historian, Felix Bunnell. Serving greater Seattle. 
When the Civil War ended in 1865, thousands of men who had fought on both sides headed west, and many settled near Puget Sound. Now, a Bothell man has devoted himself to discovering and telling the stories of the former Civil War soldiers who were laid to rest in local cemeteries. And our resident historian, Felix Bennell, got a preview of a free tour taking place on Capitol Hill tomorrow. Felix is brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Hey, good morning, Aaron. Have you ever been to the Grand Army of the Republic Cemetery on Capitol Hill? I have not. Yeah, it's right across the street, just to the north from that giant Lakeview Cemetery, a much more famous place where Bruce Lee and other people are buried, on the north part of the hill. Now, it dates to the 1880s. There's about 500 Union veterans of the Civil War buried there. It's been a city park for almost 100 years, but it's also been something of an orphan at times. Uh, For the past few decades, a group of neighbors has tended the grounds and worked with the Seattle Parks Department as an official friends group to raise money and to keep an eye on the place. There's one neighbor who raises and lowers the flag every day. Anyway, it's one of the most distinctive places in the city in terms of the setting and the history and just the look and the feel, really, too. Um, Hmm. So tomorrow night, there's a local historian named Richard Heisler who's going to lead a free guided tour. He's a professional artist for his day job and a very successful one, um, but he spent the past two years doing deep research on each of the veterans buried on Capitol Hill. Now, the stories that are hidden there make that tiny patch of land pretty incredible. And one thing that's distinct about this place and makes it special, um, and I think it's only comparable to the Ording Soldiers Home Cemetery or maybe the Veteran Cemetery in California where the Soldiers Home was, is the diversity. Because if you, you have cemeteries with more Civil War veterans, there's 500 or so here in Chicago or Cleveland or Pittsburgh, but they're going to be mostly guys from Illinois or mostly guys from Pennsylvania. Here, it's an insanely diverse grab bag. There's somebody from every single state, every single battle, every campaign of the war, every branch of service, heavy artillery, cavalry, navy, marines, infantry, light infantry, mounted infantry. It's all here. Wow. You know, and that's because Seattle was a magnet for people in the 19th century from all over the country, right? People were coming here, and it was a relatively new community settled by people from elsewhere. Now, I got a preview of the tour with Richard Heisler a few days ago, and pretty much everywhere you turn, there's an interesting story. You literally will trip over the headstones if you're not careful. Now, the wealthy veterans um, are in places like Lakeview across the street, but the GAR Cemetery, the Grand Army of the Republic, which is sort of a veterans group, has its notable people, too, like Tip Winchell. Among the people of Seattle at the time, there's a guy named... Topping Winchell, Tip Winchell was his nickname. He was a bailiff for the Seattle Police Court. And pre-TV and pre-radio, the stories of the happenings of the police court were tremendous entertainment in the newspaper. So it was like a daily column, week, you know, a big deal. And Tip was apparently an enormous personality. Super bigger, like just bigger than life guy. Um... And when he passed away, it was kind of a big deal. That was the biggest funeral to ever take place in here because he was kind of a beloved figure um, for the, the people of Seattle. Yeah, and there's, there's not much in the way of any photos of any uh, funerals that ever took place there. And most of the things that happened were pretty small time. But this Tip Winchell funeral was huge, hundreds of people. Wow. Now, Richard Heisler does have a bit of a personal connection to one of the soldiers buried at the GAR Cemetery. His third great-grandfather was in the 97th New York Infantry, and, and so was a guy named Justice Rockwell. They were both wounded at Fredericksburg in 1862, within maybe 100 yards of each other, and both went to the same hospital. Now, it turns out that Justice Rockwell, whose grave is there on Capitol Hill and has been there for more than 100 years, was a pretty famous songwriter. He actually wrote that music we heard a few minutes ago. He wrote a super, 
super famous song of the Civil War called Sherman's March to the Sea. He was a musician before the war. So he has a really captivating story about how that song was written in Columbia, South Carolina, in the prison pen on Christmas Day of 1864 when they got the news that Sherman had reached Augusta from marching, you know, the march to the sea had concluded. They had no idea in this prison. And one of the black men who was working as a baker for the to make bread for the prisoners uh, who were pretty much starving as it was, he wrote it on a piece of paper and he folded it up. They said less than the size of a thimble, put it in the loaf of bread, sent the loaf of bread into the prison. They got the news. The place went crazy. He, as a musician, wrote this song. Another musician wrote, or he was more of a, a poet, I guess, wrote the lyrics to the song. They performed it for the first time Christmas morning, 1864. Wow. And if that wasn't enough of a story, they also smuggled the sheet music out of the prison in a fellow prisoner's hollow artificial leg. No. And the song was published and sold millions of copies, but uh, wow. Justice Rockwell didn't see a penny of it because he was in prison. Mm. So Richard Heiser has been doing tons of research about the Union soldiers buried there. We also had Confederates in Seattle as well. Um, Heiser says that the relationship between the two groups of veterans, Confederates and, and Union soldiers, was different here in the Northwest than it would have been back in, say, Tennessee or Virginia. The Northwest was more recently settled, so there was just a different dynamic. The general consensus was, like, we're not going to fight the war anymore. And you really see it in the Spanish-American War and World War One. They're all vocal. The Confederates in particular in Seattle uh, are super vocal about we're fighting under one flag now. Our sons and grandsons are fighting under the Stars and Stripes and the Confederacy is, it is what it is. We still believe we were right, but that's in the past. They, the, the Seattle Confederates really, really hold to that idea. So this tour is tomorrow night at 7 o'clock on Capitol Hill. We have all the information at MyNorthwest.com. Um, Richard Heisler is one of these guys who I love to meet, who's just deeply passionate about a topic. He goes, spends us all the research finds all these incredible stories and then I'm able to share them on the radio like this and so yeah. it's a great chance to get out it's outdoors you know you can be socially distanced it's a perfect thing to do in, a, in the late stages of a pandemic to visit a cemetery where there's just all these great hidden stories Felix I, I'm, I'm blown away this is fascinating it was right right under my nose I used to live blocks from there and didn't even know that, that the cemetery existed yeah, they don't do a lot to promote it because it's just a city park. A lot, of, Most veterans are buried in federal facilities or facilities that have some kind of a, um, a mandate and have mm -hmm. sort of a, a, a money to, serve, to support them into the future. This thing is dependent on the goodwill of those neighbors and the Seattle Parks Department keeping an eye on it. And it's just hundreds and hundreds of people with hundreds and hundreds of fascinating stories. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Again, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock at the Grand Army of the Republic yeah, Cemetery. Yeah, yeah. It's all free and no pre-registration required. Just be nice if you park somewhere. Don't park in front of someone's driveway. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, spring and summer 1889 were seasons of fire for cities in Washington Territory. A Wednesday morning, a scratchy record. It can only be one thing. Felix Bunnell has emerged from the vault deep beneath the Bonneville Broadcast Center. If you've taken the Seattle Underground Tour or you've ridden a local duck boat, you know something about the Great Seattle Fire, which started 129 years ago today. But there were two other fires that summer that you feel we should be uh, aware of. Felix, by the way, is brought to us by the King County Library System. And one of them, I'm guessing, based on the the book you just handed me called Spokane Saga 
happened in Spokane. Yeah, the only of the three fires we'll talk about, too, have inspired a romance novel, kind of a pulpy novel from the 1950s, as you can tell by the cover there. But, Spokane you know, <laughs> Saga, The Rebuilding of a City Destroyed by Zola Ross. Sort of a, a pot no boiler there, kind of the heaving bosom kind I, of fire. So there's that. not one about Seattle, unfortunately, but that fires in those days were almost a form of urban renewal. Those pioneer cities of the 1850s and 1860s were wiped out, um, allowing a fresh start for a more modern metropolis. So, you know, um, the cities in those days were mostly wood, right? And the wood right. had been curing for many years. It was like stacked like cordwood. Um, Seattle's fire began with a boiling pot of glue on a stove and carpenters, a carpenter's efforts to try to put the fire out, which was a bad idea to dump water on it, spread to the sawdust. Now, you know that big colorful mural of the fire at Mohai? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was dedicated back in 1953 at the old Mohai in Montlake. And on that occasion, somebody had the bright idea to assemble a panel of eyewitnesses to the 1889 fire which at that point was only 64 years in the past, which would be like 1954, which doesn't seem that long ago to me. No. <laughs> anyway, um, radio station KXA, which is actually our sister station, KTTH, was there that day, and they were smart enough to record the memories for posterity. I stumbled across those recordings back in 2000 in, in the archives at Mohai. Um, there's cuts of Charles Thorndike. He was 83 or 84 when he shared his memories of the fire. He was 20 years old on June 6, 1889, and on the job just north of Madison Street. I was working in a, a hardware store operated by P. Haynes at 1007 uh, Front Street, which was a block and three or four doors north of where the fire started. We didn't think the fire was going north. We f- felt for an hour after its start that it was headed south and would not come our way, but soon we found the smoke coming up through the boards and planks which were covered the piles and on which the store building was built. The smoke and the flames began to come up, and then we took uh, the movable uh, stores out of the building and carried them across the street uh, at the corner of uh, the northwest, northeast corner of First and Madison Street. Yeah, and I love hearing that scratchy old recording. That's just that's just sets my day off right. Um, spring of 1889 was one of those warm, dry seasons we seem to get every decade or so, where May is hot and dry. Not like this year. We've had one of these maybe five or six years ago. Get that high pressure, winds from the north all the time. That's why the fire mostly burned south of First and Madison where it started, but it also creeped north as well, as far north as University in some parts, and mostly bounded by Second and Third Avenue. Fire department was all volunteer in those days. Um, the chief was out of town on June 6th. He was the best qualified guy to organize a response, and the tide was out, so there's little or no access to water. Um, now, it was less than a month later, on July 4th, when Ellensburg caught fire. The cause of that blaze never been, has never been satisfactorily determined, but the place it started was a grocery store on Main, between, um, between 4th and 5th, if you know downtown Ellensburg at all. It was late at night. There's plenty of conspiracy theories about that fire. They've never figured out the cause, and apparently there's lots of information about who might have done it or what the reason was. It took four hours to burn and four months for the city to rebuild itself. And we have great pictures of this fire, all these fires at my northwest, of course. It was one month after that, on Sunday, August 4th, when Spokane Falls caught fire in the late afternoon. And one person actually died in that fire. These other fires didn't, there were no fatalities. And that blaze in Spokane was accidental. It started in a small hotel and a restaurant on Railroad Avenue. There was a lot of shifting winds, and they blew up buildings to try to create a fire break. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was just chaotic. And all the fire departments were volunteer in those days. About 30 blocks of Spokane burned, and a tent city went up in its place. Now, this is my favorite part about the Spokane fire. All these provisions rolled into town from all over the place to sort of help the poor people of Spokane, including a lot of uh, cured meats that apparently several members of the city government ended up stocking in their basements. <laughs> and they started to call the, uh, the uh, city leaders the Ham Council because everybody just took advantage of all these free provisions that came into town. Fortunately, they shortened the name of Spokane Falls to Spokane in 1890, not as a result of the fire, but just probably to save time. Um, <laughs> 
Let's get back to Charles Thorndike. He survived the fire. Of course, he went back to the remains of the hardware store on June 7th. I had just completed a few weeks of uh, service in that store and had money enough to buy a new suit of clothes, and I was very proud of it. But in uh, taking the material out of the store, I took off the coat and vest and put it in a desk and moved the desk across the street with the rest of the stuff. The next morning, the desk was gone, and I never got the suit of clothes back. (laughs) So I think the factors in all three fires were the fact the wood was all cured, we had that dry weather, water pressure was tough to come by in the 1880s, and uh, all volunteer firefighter forces. Do we have time to play this last cut? Yeah, we do. Let's hear this last little bit. from This is an unidentified woman um, speaking about the Great Seattle Fire. Well, Professor Ingraham kept all the children in school, and then we were everyone cautioned to go straight home. And I went straight to the fire and stayed until a policeman found me. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Wow. Uh, Always seeking adventure, apparently. Yeah, little kids always love fires. Wow. Now, does Mohai still have that exhibit, that Seattle Fire exhibit there? They actually had to create a smaller version of that mural for the new museum. The the original mural's in um, in storage, but they do Mm -hmm. have an exhibit dedicated to the fire because it's a seminal event of the city's history and kind of clearing away the old pioneer city and letting us build a modern metropolis. Right. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. This has been World's Fair Newswire, a last-minute report on progress of the Seattle World's Fair, prepared by World's Fair News in Seattle.